The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Forward Thinking CFO Podcast. I'm Denver McCann, Managing Director at Numeritas and one of your hosts for this series. In today's episode, I speak to Richard Evans, Finance Director at Excalibur Communications. Excalibur is a leading B2B, full-service IT and communications business. Richard joined Excalibur in late 2017 and hit the ground running, executing a management buyout within less than a year of his arrival. Successfully managing disposals, acquisitions, international expansion, and the demands of a management buyout are typically career-defining activities for most financial professionals. Richard has ticked all of these boxes, gaining a wealth of expertise along the way. With such a range of experiences, there were plenty of topics for us to dive into, and Richard had some great insights. Some of these included why he values his auditing and accounting training and experience, how some businesses need to shrink before they can fully realize their potential, and the importance of managing rapid and far-reaching change. Another theme Richard related was the importance he placed on connecting at a human level with his team and his peers, and in understanding their roles and tasks. Richard extolled the virtues of a robust financial model in both the transaction setting as well as in evaluating ongoing uncertainty. He also shared with us some of the practical challenges in an MBO process, the mechanics as well as the emotional aspects of this type of transaction. We discussed the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic and his insights around remote working, relationships and the role of feedback loops in planning and decision making. Finally, we talked about mentors, his attitude towards career progression, and to round up, his views on the challenges in the short and the medium term for forward-thinking CFOs. I really enjoyed talking to Richard. He provided an authentic and honest account of key moments and lessons learnt in his career. His journey demonstrates what it takes to become a high-performing CFO, from mastering the small details to providing strategic value to the CEO and the board. Whatever point you are at in your finance career, listening to Richard will provide a number of insights for those of you who are aspiring towards the CFO role, or for those who have already reached that pinnacle. So, with that introduction, please sit back and enjoy today's episode of the Forward Thinking CFO with Richard Evans. Richard, welcome and and thank you very much for joining us today. This is the Forward Thinking CFO podcast, and as is tradition, to get us started, we, we usually like to look back at how you've got to where you are today, to being that forward-thinking sort of finance professional, and describe your journey and the key stepping stones that you've taken to get to where you are in your current role. Sure. So I, I joined Anderson in Bristol out of university, moved across to Deloitte when Enron happened and qualified as a chartered accountant with Deloitte. I think that, you know, that ACA qualification is a really great grounding 
and you know, I was there for a little bit over 10 years. And I think the main thing I got out of that was just the variety, being able to observe so many different businesses and management teams. Uh, I was based outside of London. So that obviously meant I didn't have to choose a particular industry specialization, which for me worked out really well. You know, I, I worked on over my time at Deloitte clients from retail, technology, with charities, manufacturing, financial services. I mean, you name it really. So there were, and there were also within that, you know, big listed clients, owner managed businesses. So you know, very, very broad spectrum. Uh, and while that obviously meant I didn't get a deeper specialism in any one particular area, I think the benefit for me was just that, that breadth. And I'm talking about different industries there, but also the different management styles and approaches. So, you know, as I became more senior in Deloitte, I was presenting in audit committee meetings and sitting in board meetings. And, you know, as I look back on that now, I think it was a really good early insight into different styles, different attitudes to risk and different ways of dealing with disagreement and reaching decisions as well. So I just think the different board dynamics, you know, that I saw at that early point have kind of fed into to what I've been doing more recently. After that time with Deloitte, I moved to Tribal. Um, so after about 10, 11 years, I came in firstly reporting to the GFC, reasonably quickly moved into the GFC role and then following that, a divisional finance director role. Now that group was a conglomerate when I joined. It was focused on public sector, um, built on a, on a large number of acquisitions and I think it was around 2010 when the coalition government came in, there was a big shift in public spending in the private sector and that caused some challenges for the group. So we, a strategic review, looked at it and concluded that there were parts of that business that were more valuable standalone than as part of the group. So a number of those divisions were divested and what we had, you know, after all of that was a, a very profitable education software business with a, a good secure revenue base. And the plan was to solidify that business in the UK, but also take it overseas. So I was with Tribal for around six years, and that was all six of those years were were marked by significant change. So a, a very rapid shrinking of the group in the first couple of years as we divested those businesses, and then immediately into a big international scale up. So you know, I le- learned a huge amount over the course of you know, of those roles. And I was lucky enough there to work for a CEO and peers within my team who were really supportive and we all worked our way well together through all those changes. I moved to my current role just over three years ago, which was my first CFO role. And that was to support an MBO where the basic principles of a deal had been agreed between the two parties, but they needed someone to come in and professionalize the finance function and just get the banks on board to to fund the deal and, and comfortable with the the business and the projections that, that probably brings us up to date i think okay brilliant that's um that's a really um useful bit of context and background and hopefully we can now kind of dig into some of these areas as we as we kind of progress the conversation so i guess there's a number of areas that are, are kind of core themes from what i can hear and some of the things we talked about earlier before recording and i guess they fall into two sort of camps which we'll, we'll focus on today one of which is is as you as you mentioned the the sort of the shrinking and or divestment and and disposal of of parts of businesses 
is is one area. I think there's a an element of kind of acquisition integration, which we can probably touch on that happened sort of later on down the line. And I think a theme that we talked about sort of offline, more in the in the realm of mentoring and and how that's impacted your development and your kind of view of the world as a as a CFO. So with that as context, I guess let's dive into it. So the early stages of um, kind of starting at, you know, group finance manager, moving out of Deloitte's, you've kind of gone from world of professional services and, and being the advisor, but never being the decision maker. And, you know, that's a shift in, in of itself in terms of mindset and, and all sorts of things like that. But as you shifted into those roles and moved from finance manager to, you know, group financial controller to finance director, et cetera, you know, what were the biggest challenges that you had to overcome as you made that progression? And I see my time at Tribal as two distinct phases. And I think the challenges, you know, differed between those two phases. So I think phase one, I would characterize as that, you know, that shrinking down of the business to really focus on on the education software division. So as I mentioned before, I joined a group with five very different divisions and an entirely separate central group function. I joined reporting into the GFC. We were based in a in a small head office in the middle of the Cotswolds. So, you know, a very sort of particular day-to-day uh, role. The individual divisions had their own, you know, their own finance teams and were, were sort of relatively autonomous. Yeah, I reasonably quickly found myself uh, promoted to, to GFC in, in an office in central Bristol, which was where the education head office team was based and faced with a team that had been through some really significant uncertainty and a, and, a, and a big period of change. You know, not everyone had made the transition uh, across either relocation from the head office or, or other reasons. And so, you know, I had a team who were, you know, not necessarily 100% clear on their role, on the direction of the group, you know, and a team in Bristol wondering who these guys from, from group office that had turned up were. So getting from there to building a strong, engaged, motivated team was a, was a real challenge. And I think, you know, I was lucky that I had a couple of senior members in that team in, in Bristol that I came into that were you know, very good, very strong, up for a challenge, good ambition. And, you know, I was really able to focus on getting them on board and making sure they understood the vision and the direction of the group and how that gave them opportunities. So I think I've mentioned before, there was constant change over my time at tribal and you know the real positive of that for everybody working in finance is that if you're you know if you're good and you're strong then those opportunities for you to step in and prove yourself in a in a new challenging area are, are easy to find so i think that that worked well one of the other things i'd sort of recommend to people if if they could which i which i did there which is not always easy to to make work in practice is trying to really make sure that I understood the core issues of the roles I was asking my team to fulfill. So, you know, to give you an example, my consolidation accountant didn't transition down into Bristol with the move. And that had always been a little bit of a black box to me. And I'd sort of managed that team, but I hadn't come up through it myself. So what I did was I didn't immediately replace her. And I spent a couple of months sort of doing and you know getting my sleeves rolled up and, and doing that consolidation so I found that then you know having 
recruited and brought somebody in, it was much easier to manage that individual. You know, we found some good time savings and improvements together. And I think I came out of that really understanding what my team was was doing. So I think that's a, a recommendation I would make. As I say, I think it's often easier said than done, but it, it worked well in that instance. Yeah, I think phase two of my time at Tribal was then the international scale up and that, you know, was a whole different situation. So we went from a pretty limited overseas presence to I think in the end around a third of revenue coming from outside of the UK and that was in quite a small period of time. And I think that the eye opener for me in that aspect was, you know, obviously in my time at Deloitte I'd seen a lot of international businesses. What I hadn't seen was the scale up actively happening. You know, it was it was all sort of ready made if you like. So you know, for me, what that looked like in, in terms of real sort of day to day, you know, there were there were finance specific challenges, obviously. So trying to work out, you know, how to get up to speed with local laws and requirements, what the local tax returns were, what the best corporate vehicle was to, to deliver the project, getting, a, you know, your head around that and understanding what the best approach was in each location was new and, and, and challenging but then obviously more broad than that, you've got, you know, you're pitching for work in different countries with therefore widely varying requirements in terms of tender documents. Uh, the delivery was was interesting of projects. We had a pretty specialized knowledge set in our product implementation team. So it wasn't as simple as just, you know, recruiting people in situ in locations. So we, we had a combination of recruitment in in country, but a pretty large scale relocation of UK people to overseas locations. Those implementations were often multi years, so it was a you know a long term endeavour, and just simple things like dealing with cultural differences in country, and then the practical point of of time differences, which again, when you're you know as I'm sure sure many of your listeners will have experience of when you're in a in a business that's already established with an international presence, then you've got teams in situ in location and yeah that they're, they're hopefully you know kind of capable of, of running what they need to run on a day-to-day basis what we found as we were doing the setup was that the the back and forth and the interactions you know needed to be a lot a lot more than that as we were embedding processes and, and systems and ways of working so just a kind of practical challenge particularly because one of our bigger bigger projects in the early days was was in australia so you know, about as far different as you can get in terms of time difference. So just the practicalities of finding ways of of working and making sure those interactions were, you know, happening and working for people and, and giving a sensible sort of work life balance was a was a challenge that we had to kind of constantly focus on. Yeah, I mean that's 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 really um, kind of interesting stuff, and I think that whole journey of of international expansion is not one that everyone necessarily has to do from scratch. Quite often, you know, people will will build themselves up in a role in an organisation where that already exists, and so the the sort of um, I guess you could say the the green field of opportunity in in far flung places that might look very attractive, you know can sometimes have challenges and, and kind of uh, roadblocks that aren't expected and, and that you never thought would have been an issue. But actually, the reality is different. And I guess just because you know what you think the end game should look like or what the end game tends to look like in in other businesses that you have experience of, it doesn't necessarily tell you what the first step 
or the second step or the third step look like. So the the path to that end was the bit that um yeah honestly I hadn't hadn't really given a lot of thought to and we had to sort of negotiate that as we went through. Okay. So I mean that that kind of takes you to a point where you're kind of you know, you've gone through that initial shrinking down process, refocusing the business, executing on the international expansion and, and that growth strategy of the the now kind of more rationalized tribal group. And then in 2016, you were kind of presented with an opportunity to run with disposing of, of I guess, one of the remaining pieces that hadn't quite yet been sort of sold and that was the sort of synergy business or synergy product and that you guys ended up selling to Servalec for something just around 20 million pounds in 2016. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about this experience and some of the challenges you had to overcome because I guess in this instance you were leading on that and had had you know the the, the buck stopped with you so to speak on on the finances front. Yeah, and I think I'd yeah I'd, I'd had involvement and I'd supported you know others in the finance team in the first wave of disposals. We'd made a couple of acquisitions in the meantime as well as part of the international scale ups. We we bought a couple of software businesses in in Melbourne, for example, which I'd I'd sort of supported on. But as you say, this this was the one where I sort of had my arms around the whole the whole thing. I mean, by way of background, yeah, Synergy was our school's product, so you know, Tribal had a a a product that that sold into the higher education universities market, um, one into into FE, so colleges, and then this was the schools product. And we'd found the you know the international expansion, the international market was there for the uh, the, the higher education and the FE product. The schools we were, we were finding some challenges with, and so yeah, that that fitted better into to Servalex future plans than it did with ours. At the same time, there was a rights issue happening so there's a, a broader fundraising going on to support that that future growth and cfo at the time was focused in on the rights issue so that worked out quite well for me in that you know he was otherwise distracted and and sort of threw me the ball on the um on the disposal i think you know to be honest with you it's it was a largely a, a massive exercise in project management i think so you know we we'd We'd high high level terms had been agreed. Pricing was was broadly there. So for me, it was about you know, getting that deal over the line, and just in terms of understanding the various phases that needed to be gone through, without huge distractions in terms of sort of detailed you know, beauty parades and, and processes was was really a really useful grounding that then you know fed into the MBO experience that that I had at Excalibur, which we'll come to in a minute. But I think in terms of the main, I guess work streams you know we, we had a good group-wide budgeting model in place at that point so you know the financial model for the synergy business as a whole came out of that fairly well with a with a little bit of help so it stood alone and had a really strong finance team on that side of the business the financial controller of that area was was very strong very close to the detail and knew the product well so as i say it really became a logistical challenge about organizing internal responses to commercial financial diligence that was happening you know pulling in the relevant people from across the business whether it was you know, contracts and, and legal team whether it was product experts software developers just to deal with the, the the questions and the challenges that were coming from the from the buyers team and then obviously engaging with lawyers on contracts and working through any 
sort of aspects of those that were, you know, that were contentious or that were, you know, not 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 agreed on the first pass with the buyer. So, yeah, fairly mechanical, but just very interesting in terms of you know exposure to that type of thing and the whole process from from front to back. I think also, yeah, the interaction with the lawyers was was a pretty interesting experience. So we had a we had a good guy on the on the project for us who you know was a was a contact that I've made use of again in in future so that was a that was a good uh, sort of interaction to have at that point as well yeah and i guess as with a lot of things in life as you as you step through your journey you meet with new people kind of either internally or externally and you know this touches on that whole building your network building your kind of trusted circle of both advisors but also potential mentors and and people that you kind of grow to respect and trust yeah agreed and and i think yeah when you when you, when people talk about networking it it sort of brings to mind you know wandering wandering around with a glass in your hand and and sort of trying to introduce yourself to to people you haven't met before and that's you know there's a place for that and it's it's a valuable thing to do but it it's not something that comes you know desperately naturally to, to me if i'm honest and i think you know where my network has has tended to come from is as you say more through working with people and forming those relationships and i you know i've i've made an effort to you know to keep in touch with and to find an excuse to to keep in touch with those individuals that i've that i've come across on things but but say I, I when you talk about networking it doesn't need to be that sort of classic view of it so much as just people that you're interacting with anyway just just keep in touch with them to the extent you that you get on and there's a there's a, a valuable connection to be made exactly i think it's whether you know you know for me the the litmus test sometimes is uh, you know do i like working with this person and if i do then that probably feels like it's the right kind of relationship to invest my time and effort in and uh, yeah totally agree with the uh, you know it's it's definitely the polar opposite of you know loud noisy kind of drinks based kind of networking events versus true relationship building yeah for me the the, the relationship building is, is is much more important right so that neat, neatly kind of almost takes us into the transition point where you've kind of served your time at tribal you've learnt a whole bunch of really important kind of lessons around growing a business making acquisitions making disposals you know all those good things and 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 the day-to-day operational aspects which which clearly we haven't touched on in a massive amount of detail but you moved out of a business that's kind of predominantly software with a bit of i guess consulting stroke implementation type angle on it and then sort of pivoted to something which was more in the the sort of IT support and telecommunications in a B2B environment. And, and and I guess this is this is your move to Excalibur Communications, which I think you did in what September 2017-ish or thereabouts. And I mean, tell us a little bit more about why you made that move and how you feel that that's kind of supported your evolution into the role you have today and how did that role really change from you know kind of what you did at tribal to what you then had to start doing at excalibur i'd always wanted to aim for a cfo role you know ultimately in in my career but i think as i've described at at tribal it just felt like there was so much 
happening and so much experience being gained that 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 didn't sort of seem like an urgent thing that needed to happen. You know, towards the end of the six years, there was a change in management and the rapid growth had slowed down. So my role became much much more focused on the on the day to day, and I think you know for 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 a little bit that's fine, but that that's not hugely interesting to me. And to be honest, I was you know a little bit too expensive to be just just doing that as well. So you know from from both sides that led to a to a move being the right answer. There are a couple of opportunities for similar roles, you know, sort of divisional finance director in a in a larger business. But you know, as I said, I sort of felt I wanted to look for that that number one role. And Excalibur were looking for a CFO to come in on an MBO, as we've said. And I was really sold on the business and the vision for it. So the exiting owner had made a real success of diversifying a mobile business into IT and fixed line, which he'd then grown both organically and through some some acquisitions and through that he'd maintained a incredibly strong people and community culture in the business so it was a a really compelling story in terms of where it had come where it was and and the story for future growth as well the incoming ceo had a very strong experience in the sector he he was ex vodafone he knew the exiting ceo from that role so yeah there's a lot of logic to the to the transaction and it just you know sounded like a sounded like a good challenge really the role itself is clearly incredibly different it's a much smaller business so i think that's nice in the sense that you feel you can get your arms around everything and the biggest change is is just the breadth really of the role i think you know i i need to be all over the detail and you alluded earlier to you know we've not really gone into that that sort of day-to-day aspect yet and that's not because it's unimportant i think it's to an extent taken for granted in a ceo you know you need to be able to dive down into detail you need to be able to crawl through a reconciliation you need to be able to spot spot those errors it's not necessarily what your ceo will will value you for but they'll certainly notice if if you get it wrong. So all of that stuff is crucial and really deserves your time. But I think you've then got to obviously layer on top of that where you're really adding value to, you know, the CEO and the rest of the board. But in terms of my role at the moment, yeah, I mean I'll I'll you know, some days I'll spend the morning, I don't know, looking at action points on age debtors, you know, reviewing reconciliations, making sure payroll files make sense and then you know in the afternoon you sat in a board meeting talking about product strategy and three-year plans and market trends so i don't think that's peculiar to small business i think you know cfo role needs to be able to you know to move up and down in and out of detail and be confident in doing that and that's really what i've seen most markedly in terms of the the, the coming into that new role at excalibur i think Brilliant. Um, I think that's a, there's some some useful points there in terms of of kind of not undervaluing that ability to to kind of shift perspective, to step back from the detail, but then jump straight back into it. I think that's that's a unbelievably difficult thing to get right and to do consistently. So yeah, I totally totally uh, kind of agree with that. Now, clearly 
the initial move was was to support and execute on on the MBO. And from the timings perspective, it, it seems like it was a bit of a baptism of fire, kind of uh, hit the ground sprinting and get things done in something like eight or nine months, start to end from when you joined. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and you're right. It was it was challenging. I think the conversation had been you know been ongoing for a little while. I, I alluded before the, the incoming and exiting CEO knew each other, had sort of agreed high level terms and a and a broad valuation. But yeah, that that was really where they'd got to, and I think fairly quickly at that point they realised that they needed to professionalise the finance team and really make sure that the business could stand up to the scrutiny of diligence from a, from a bank because the you know, the whole MBO is going to be debt debt backed. So I came in on that basis, and I think yeah, it would have been easy to dive headlong straight into you know conversations with banks and lawyers and setting process in motion. But I probably spent the first couple of months just really getting the drains up and getting into the detail of the finance team and uh, and really understanding the business. I think yeah, we we, we needed to improve the quality and timeliness actually of the monthly reporting some of the controls and processes as well and i I just think skipping over that would have been a a false economy so yeah so there's a good month or two of 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 that focus so sort of internal focus if you like in terms of finance team specifically and then i rolled into you know the, the, the financial model so they they had they had something in place and it was it was fine and again it may have been tempting to to live with fine but i i think i really needed to to invest the time in getting that uh you know working and fully integrated and allowing it to give me clarity on what the key moving parts were and how they affected the outcome so that spreadsheet now is my you know bible still uh you know kind of two and a half years later in terms of budgeting cash management, performance monitoring, et cetera. So yeah, really worth putting that effort in up front, although it was a you know a, a decent chunk of time with you know, kind of evenings and weekends getting that up and running and, and working well. Having that in place then was the point for myself and the CEO to go and talk to banks, present the story, give them that that model supporting that story and really get to you know, indicative head to term stage with them at that point. I think then the other <laughs> sort of voluntary challenge that we we gave ourselves, if you like, was we did run a process on advisors. So we retendered the audit and the tax advice. We went out and did a beauty parade on lawyers, and we were just keen that yeah, it felt like the beginning of a journey for myself and the incoming. CEO and, and and the rest of the board of directors and we just didn't we, we wanted to make sure that the team that was around us and advising us were a team that we positively selected rather than just who happened to be incumbent when we came in and we really also wanted it to be a, a long-term relationship so not just for the the mechanics of that immediate phase of the MBO but you know a, a longer term relationship through you know the the hopefully the growth of the business and, and I guess ultimately an exit. So we were keen that, you know, we, we were talking to people and using people who had you know the right experience, who we got on with and could see ourselves working with. So we went through that process 
um, at that point and got people on board who met those criteria. And then, yeah, at that point, we're into the, the process itself. And again, for, for people that, you know, that don't know or are interested in what that entails, I'd say there were three main work streams, each obviously with its own offshoots. But firstly, we had a an external firm of accountants come and crawl all over the model, appointed by the bank, just to sort of kick the tires on that, check its integrity, and, and obviously understand and stress test the key assumptions, see how they stacked up with recent history and so on. So that, that was one sort of stage, working with them, helping to talk through and, and justify the choices I'd made in in that modeling and um, helping them get comfortable that there was some 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 rigor and some robustness to that that process and the financial side of things. Second work stream was around obviously the key transaction documents. So our lawyers pulled those together. The SPA itself, there were some loan notes associated with the deal and there was a call option. We were taking out the majority of shares, but not all. Um, we took the minority out just in the last month or so. So there was a call option over those. So what I found at that point was while, as I mentioned earlier, that the high level had been agreed between the incoming and outgoing CEO, obviously, as you draft those documents, you get into a lot of specifics that you know, hadn't necessarily come up as they'd been, you know, sort of discussing it over a beer or whatever it was. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, clearly having those conversations and, and making sure you've got answers in place that work for everybody and, you know, negotiating on the finer points of detail, you know, was all part of that step. And then thirdly, we had the bank documents. So the bank's lawyers were drafting their facility agreement, which we obviously had to review and get, get comfortable with. I mean, from my perspective, I guess the main focus was just on making sure that the covenants were, you know, properly understood, that the definitions worked and were in line with what I'd modelled and that there weren't going to be any sort of surprises there in terms of exclusions or inclusions or, or whatever it may be. So that was that process. And yeah, as you said, you know, kind of eight, eight, nine months front to back. So it was it was hard work, but I think it was in many ways quite nice in the sense that I had a a pretty clear measurable objective that I was that I was coming into and I guess you know in some ways that's that's nice it was it was pretty clear when I when I'd achieved it and obviously then we, we lifted our heads and, and looked forward to the next phase. Oh that's um that's really quite quite interesting kind of background to an MBO process and you know I guess you've covered off the the kind of almost taken my my next question off the table but that's 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 really good. Well I think on on that I think you know on the sort of broader points I yeah as you say I've talked through the mechanics of it I guess you know my reflections on it I mean I mentioned it I did mention at the start the the need to understand the business in depth and and clearly you know I talked about the, the diligence process that the bank put in place and just the importance of being able to stand up to questioning and understand the various moving parts and, and so on. So yeah, rolling sleeves up and getting into detail was was crucial to getting through that process. I think the other thing I'd draw out, which may not be obvious to people, wasn't obvious to me, I don't think, was the emotional side of it, if that's the right word, for the particularly the exiting uh, previous owner. So yeah, there was so much work for me to do, as I've just described, and I had my head in all the all the documents and all the detail. And I think, you know, it became quite a mechanical transactional process for me. I 
described at the start the journey a, a little bit the journey that the previous CEO had been through and he you know he had a real emotional connection to the business he built it up he was quite rightly very proud of what he'd done with it and where he'd got it to and I think you know as I look back I I regret a little bit that I was you know in in the final final meeting on completion I was sort of throwing pieces of paper at him to sign <laughs> you know and it was a, a little bit of a mechanical thing now to be fair my incoming CEO was a, was a bit more alive to that he'd been a bit you know less into the detail of the process he did a better job of you know recognizing that there was a an event happening but i guess you know for, for, for me that that was easy to to lose in the stress i guess of the of the mechanics of getting contracts to people and getting wording agreed and so on so i think there's a yeah there's a, there's an interesting point there and i guess to broaden it out to you know transactions generally you know they're all done with people and and understanding what people are feeling and what their motivations are i think is important and that may just be on a on a human level or it may be that you know when you're in negotiation then understanding those motivations might you know might might help you reach a sensible compromise or, or get to a better answer yeah i definitely agree with those sorts of observations the the human element is often kind of not totally overlooked but it just depends on each person's sense of almost kind of you know, emotional intelligence kind of quotient as to whether they actually realize that the person across the table you know is kind of giving up something that they really have poured you know their their heart and soul into and and that that needs to be given a moment and and kind of uh, you know respected to some extent so that's that's really uh, I think a useful thing for for people to consider when they're doing these kinds of deals and it's not all just about the lawyers the documents the the numbers the, as you say people are behind it so i guess we're up to where we are today and obviously there's an interesting future for us all and and i guess no no interview in 2020 would be um complete without a discussion about covid and possibly more risky territory around things like kind of American elections and and all those sorts of good things, but we'll we'll probably put that one to the side for now. <laughs> but you know, how are you seeing these environmental things that are coming at us day to day, and how have they changed the way you're focusing on leading your team? You know, working remotely, those sorts of things, and kind of, I guess, do you have any advice for your fellow directors and and for people who who are aspiring towards that role? as we're kind of walking towards, you know, I think it's tomorrow, we go into our second lockdown. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, the word unprecedented was made for 2020, wasn't it? And I think, you know, we're all trying to negotiate our way through it, whether that's, you know, personal lives or work. But I think in terms of my situation specifically and and, and, and Excalibur, you know, we're, we're relatively lucky, you know, we provide a service that remains important and, and is arguably more important as, as people move to working from home. So, you know, we, we have a good secure revenue base. So, you know, we're, we're relatively lucky, certainly compared to, to certain other businesses. We're impacted to the extent that our customers are directly impacted in the sense that they're in industries that are struggling. So it's, it's, it's almost sort of once removed. But I think, you know, that what I did you know, obviously when we first sort of saw this coming down the track and moving into lockdown back in March, it was all brand new. It was all uncertain. I mean, I, I spent a bit of time then with 
you know, with my model that I mentioned before, just trying to work through various scenarios, trying to understand the potential impact. We had quite a few things happening then. So we were moving offices, head office in April, uh, and we were changing systems sort of May-June time. So those things were ongoing and, and needed to be closed off. So we had uh, some big projects to, you know, that were that were largely there, but that still needed needed a bit of effort, you know, through that initial lockdown period. And obviously, at the same time, just trying to understand what the likely impact would be was was another task. There was lots of lots of work streams going on. I think, as I say, from my perspective, the first thing was to just try and get a grip on the impact on the business and and just really understand the kind of crucial elements around what was the likely impact on cash. You know what, what did it do to bank covenants and those sorts of things? I think having established that we were, you know, we we were kind of fine on those real core elements. I think you've then, as a team of directors, well, not then hand in hand with that, you've as a team of directors, you've got to look at your people and your responsibility to your people. I think you know, as a director and a shareholder, it's clearly legal responsibilities, but I'm sort of talking about more than that. I think everybody's facing this uncertainty. You know, everybody's trying to deal with what second lockdown means. You know, we've got people, as I'm sure everybody else have, who are at home on their own and, and really not excited about the prospect of facing that again for another month. We've got people who care for elderly relatives who are, you know, particularly worried about what their day-to-day actions might bring in terms of risk. So I think we need to understand as as directors, as as managers that people are dealing with that and while we have to make the best decisions for the business and we should continue to do that i think there's a again similar to the point i made earlier there's a human element there that we've just got to keep a focus on right now as everybody sort of tries to work through this uncertainty i think i mean you mentioned remote working you know for us that's been pretty manageable you know we're a technology company and so technologically it, it works i think the thing that we've learned is that you know that personal interaction is still incredibly valuable and just trying to make sure that that the interactions that happen naturally when you're in an office still happen when you're not so you know i was finding that i was still having plenty of meetings and conversations with my direct contacts if you like so my my finance team my ceo my fellow directors you know we have meetings in the diary we're now just doing them on teams rather than face-to-face and that's a little different but not hugely different but the bigger interactions around you know sort of bumping into a salesperson who's you know struggling to build a deal and ask for some help or, or whatever it may be they're not necessarily happening so you just need to find ways to to make those in or to force those interactions so whether that's you know a check-in with somebody not necessarily with a particular reason but just to sort of is there anything we need to talk about or, or just finding an excuse to have that, that conversation is probably the main lesson I've taken from remote working. That is the big difference. That's great. I think that's uh, something we're all grappling with. And um, yeah, I think the focus on people, as you say, first, obviously we, we all have to survive the businesses need our businesses need to all kind of get through this, but we should be doing so with a, a kind of a, a human perspective and um, a focus on that as well as the bottom line stroke cash flow. I think so. And it doesn't need to be mutually exclusive, I don't think, is the is – the, I guess the other point you mentioned, advice, I suppose, you know, back to kind of model, models and, and forecasts and so on, and that's, I guess, 
you know, for lots of CFOs, that's the challenge at the moment. We, we, we're not sitting on a lot of data in terms of uh, similar historical sort of events, and that that tends to make things a little challenging in terms of predicting the future. I would just say, you know, that the, the feedback loop is important. So understanding where the uncertainties are first and communicating that appropriately to you know other decision makers, the rest of the board or whoever that may be, but then really just trying to make sure that as more information comes in, you try to get that feedback loop working as well as possible. So if it turns out that a forecast was incorrect, it's fine. Let's sit down and understand what that teaches us and how we might build that into to the next forecast. So we've been trying to get that regularity of feeding new information in, understanding the lessons that it teaches us and 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 reforecasting as something that's more regular now. And I think that, you know, isn't going to remove all uncertainty, but it just gives you as good a chance as you can at getting some something sensible coming out in terms of forecast. Brilliant. Okay. So I'm conscious of time and it's been a great kind of discussion around the the kind of almost aspects of CFO roles, the things we need to do either in acquiring or selling businesses, etc. But I want to kind of bring us back to the the kind of mentorship and kind of almost personal development and evolution of a CFO, because I think that's something our conversation a few weeks ago kind of highlighted that you felt was 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 a core part of how you've got to where you've got to. So I guess given that that's your your kind of starting point, what do you think it, having a mentor has given you and what are the, the the biggest benefits you take from having that kind of relationship with a trusted sort of mentor? Yeah, so I think even at you know even at Deloitte the the benefit of working for a different manager and or partner you know every couple of weeks or or month just gives you visibility of lots of different management styles and uh, yeah that's useful so i think observing how others approach situations is 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 helpful and getting as much experience as that just means you can you know try different things yourself and and react to different situations with you know hopefully a good sort of tool set in terms of um you know approach i think though the i mean the majority of my professional development and and certainly that sort of mental relationship really came through when I was at Tribal. I, I mentioned already the CFO, you know, really, really believed in me. I think he probably pushed me into each of my promotions there before I would have necessarily been asking for them. But the key thing there is it's not just about giving responsibility. I think that the really big you know, lesson I learned and the thing I think he did really well was, you know, also making himself available. So, you know, you're stretching you're being stretched, you're being given things that you need to go away and understand how to do. But then knowing that somebody's there and available to ask when you, you know, hit, hit roadblocks or stumble just gives you that confidence in you know, being able to deliver at the end. So I think yeah, his approach worked really well for me, really kind of brought me on in terms of my confidence and, and ability and, and breadth of experience as, as we've discussed. And I think that was just infectious across the team. So, yeah, the, a couple of peers that I work with there in that in that finance team, all reporting into the CFO. Yeah, we all sort of tended to work in that way. So it you know it trickles down the business. You've got you know people further down in the finance team asking for responsibility, looking for you know proactively for additional 
value they can bring and it, it just sort of is a virtuous circle i guess and i think it's supporting the other comment i'd make is supporting each other even if it's not in your direct responsibilities if you like again just becomes that virtuous circle so you know i i'd hit challenges you know not be not be 100 clear in my mind what the answer is and, and i'd pick up with one of the other you know one of the other finance directors and you know we'd, we'd run through that together we'd sort of bounce ideas off each other and i think we'd get to a better answer as a result i just think you know as, as we said earlier investing in those relationships uh just just pays dividends hugely and you know i still talk to all of those guys now regularly i still you know bounce challenges off them and and vice versa and i, I just think that's you, know, you need to you need to think think long term really in terms of where you're investing time and not necessarily just about the task that you've got in front of your nose yeah no that's uh that's really quite um interesting sort of observations i mean in terms of how you make those choices and and kind of how you pull together that what sounds like almost a community of mentors, not just a single, you know, there may be a, a, a primary kind of go-to person, but it sounds like there's actually, as you've evolved and progressed, you've, you've added to that sort of a, a kind of a more broader team of people that you kind of call on some for certain things and some for others. I mean, what are the, the, the things that you, kind of almost look for in those sorts of people you know what makes you choose them it may be some aspect of generosity i guess I and mean, as i said before i think you know where you're able to recognize that you know s- success of the overall business is everybody's aim and you know if you can sort of help somebody hit their own goals even if it doesn't directly impact yours today or this week then you know that longer term vision is, is something that I, I think is crucial and, and, and pays dividends. So I, I guess, I mean, I, I think I've listened to a couple of the, your previous interviews and I think, you know, it's easy to hear people's career paths and think that it's about being in the right place at the right time, or that there may have been a slice of, of luck involved in a role coming up at exactly that, that moment. But I think the reality with that for everybody is that you've just got to deliver on your on your role as best you can you've got to be helpful to the people that are around you you know don't focus on your own immediate goals but look at the, the bigger picture and i think that stands you in the best stead possible to have the right percentages in your favor when something might crop up so it's, it's not about being selfish and waiting for an opportunity and jumping on it it's about you know the, the opposite helping everybody achieve their goals and then you, know, you, you can hope that when the right opportunity comes along you're in a position to take it or be given it yeah that stands true in my experience it's it's all about kind of more giving of yourself without the expectation of getting something back in return necessarily and that that kind of call it altruism call it whatever you want but um, that kind of attitude breeds a sense of both trust and respect of others in you and they then want to give to you what you're giving to others. So I think it's a, as you say, it's a virtuous circle. Right. I mean, I guess we've had a really good uh, conversation. I've enjoyed that. And I think we probably need to kind of wrap up and as is, well, you know, kind of our way of doing so we usually end off with kind of tackling the question of, you know, looking at what forward thinking CFOs need to 
do going forwards in the next six to 12 months and also in the next sort of five-year time horizon, you know, what are the important game-changing environmental or role-based challenges you see coming down the track? I mean, I think for the medium and short term, you've got to talk about an uncertain world. And I think that's probably the only certainty we have. And as I alluded to before, I think from a finance function perspective and, and people leading those functions, you've got to really look at how you can feed into decision-making processes in a meaningful way. So, you know, if we think circumstances are likely to change more quickly now and, and potentially more significantly as, as they're changing, then, you know, finding a way to shorten that feedback loop, finding a way to spot important trends quickly and being able to interpret data and communicate it to uh, fellow board members and fellow decision makers in a really clear and concise way, I think is is certainly where my focus is right now. And I think it's tempting, you know, as, as a as a finance professional, sometimes to you know show your workings in great detail because you know the fact that you've thought very hard about something and spent a lot of time on it is something that you want you want you want people to appreciate and understand. Whereas I think you know, the, the really confident CFO goes the other way. So they still do that analysis. They still spend that time, but then they're confident enough to distill it right down to the core facts and present to the other decision makers or feed into the decision process something that is as clear and concise and digestible as, as possible. I mean, clearly you need to highlight, you know, any uncertainties and, and any assumptions that are in that. But I think getting that, feedback loop working well and getting it drilled down to concise information is is absolutely crucial in next who knows six to 12 months hopefully beyond that you know things start to sort of settle down a bit i think beyond that looking longer term i mean clearly understanding the impact of new technology and automation is key i think yeah you can look at that in two different ways you know there's a there's sort of school of thought that that makes finance less relevant as, as things become more automated. I'd go the other way. I mean, I think today being a good finance team is not about churning out regular accurate figures. As I said before, that's important. And, and, and you know, if you don't do that right, then it will certainly be noticed. But that's not what people value finance teams for. Finance is valued in most businesses, I believe, for proactively feeding the right information into the business at the right time to support decisions and you know we should be looking for ways to make sure that automation is driving efficiency in the more mechanical processes so that we have rich data with strong meaningful analysis to feed into decisions and i think that's the glass half full version of what you know automation is going to bring to finance Oh, that's really good. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you today. And I believe our listeners will have taken away some, some really useful insights and lessons learned for those of them that are kind of on that journey at some stage of, of their career evolution or just starting out and um, lots of useful lessons and insights to take away from this conversation. So thank you very much. I hope so. Thanks for having me. 
So that was my first episode and the fifth in our Forward Thinking CFO podcast series. I do hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Richard, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. So please do get in touch using the email address info at numeritas.co.uk. If you'd like to find out more about Richard, check out his LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode on the Numeritas website. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.